Well, good morning. Again, wonderful to see everyone. I hope you all have a blessed Christmas day. Uh, we're just going through a short topical series on the names of Christ that are found in, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. So last week, last Sunday, we did Wonderful Counselor. Today we're doing Mighty God. Uh, tomorrow we'll do Lord Willing, Everlasting Father. And then uh, the following Sunday we'll finish off with Prince of Peace. So today we're looking at Mighty God, uh, Jesus as the Mighty God, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as the greatest gift that has ever been given. Paul says the indescribable or unexpressible gift that has been given to us. Uh, we can't put him into words. Uh, better than any present that you got today. Uh, better than any present you'll ever get. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, here in verse 6 it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is, is given. And that's why we give gifts today. Uh, it's a good thing that we give gifts. I know at birthdays we give gifts, but I don't think there's any other event where we, where we give gifts to, to everyone in the family. It's a, it's, a, it's a good practice, a good tradition, as long as we remember the ultimate gift, the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it just becomes materialistic, consumeristic. It becomes uh, just to appease our, our greed. Uh, so when you give those gifts, and especially for children, hopefully it will, will point you to Christ. Every good and perfect gift comes from from him, and the greatest gift is the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in this passage, specifically verse 6, uh, Isaiah prophesies about this child who will come, but this child is also the mighty God. Now, liberal theologians, those who don't believe that the Bible is inspired or that it's actually the Word of God, try and explain this away in, in all different ways. Uh, they don't believe in prophecy even. They don't believe that Isaiah could be prophesying accurately about the coming of Jesus Christ 700 years before he actually came. Uh, and they certainly don't believe that um, in the incarnation that Jesus came as fully human and fully God. And so they try and make this passage about one of the kings in Israel, Hezekiah or Josiah. Uh, but if you're familiar with Judaism uh, and what the Old Testament teaches, and if you were to go and speak to an Orthodox Jew, they would say it would be absolute blasphemy to say that any human being is God. Uh, no author of, the, of Scripture would ever dare to say something like that about a, a, a human king. So either it's the truth or it's, or it's not. Uh, and so for Isaiah to write this means that uh, it, is, it is true. Jesus Christ was fully human. He is born a child, a baby, and yet he is also the mighty God. And you see, Christianity hinges on this truth. You can take any other world religion. Uh, you can take Buddhism and you can take the stories and the parables and all of those things or any other religion. Uh, and you can, you can remove any historicity from it. It won't change the religion. You will still have the morals. You'll still have the principles. You'll still have the parables. It's still just a story about somebody who did this and this. And there's a lesson that you can learn. 
But you cannot do that with Christianity. You cannot say, well, it doesn't really matter if it happened or not. It doesn't really matter if Jesus Christ really came or if he really existed. Uh, You know, what matters is if it's true in your heart. If it didn't really happen, then we're wasting our time, Paul says. We have no salvation. We have no mediator. And that's what this is all about, that he has to be fully man and fully God. He has to be a child who is born, and he also has to be God, so that we might be saved. Now, what does this phrase, mighty God, or this title mean? Well, the first word there, mighty, uh, can be translated in various ways. It can mean a champion, a valiant warrior, or a hero. And I I quite like that. He is a hero. What does a hero do? A hero is someone who comes to to save. This past week, uh, the kids and I had the privilege, we went to go and watch the new Spider-Man movie. And uh, uh, it's quite good, I must say. I'm not a Spider-Man fan, but uh, it's quite good. Ricardo organized it. He was even emotional. He was crying. Uh, (laughs) um, uh, And... uh, because it has some good principles, but it is remarkable that the world is obsessed with superheroes. Uh, the, the franchises, Marvel and DC, are massive, aren't they? Think of Avengers and Superman and Black Panther and Spider-Man and Batman. Uh, and it's not just, you know, in the West. These, these franchises are massive in Africa and Asia. Uh, it seems to be universal, this obsession with, with superheroes. And certainly there are some echoes of, of Christ and Christ as a hero. But uh, I read a very interesting article by a man called Mark Bowden writing in the New York Times about our obsession with superheroes. And he said this, he said, films reflect the tastes and values of the period in which they are made. He goes on to say, and he has a heading called The Cult of Self. He says, even if they are not meant to be taken seriously by anyone other than 12, all stories mean something, even bad ones. If heroes are idealized humans, then today's reflect an exaggerated cult of self. It's all about the self, the individual. They are unique, supremely talented beings who transcend laws, even those of nature. They are lawbreakers. They do whatever they want to do. They celebrate exceptionalism and vigilantism. They go above the law. They, they, they meet out justice. Uh, they're like Judge Dredd. They, they're uh, the prosecutor, the jury, and uh, the executioner. Gone is respect for the rule of law and the importance of tradition and community. Institutions and human knowledge are useless. Religion is irrelevant. Governments are corrupt and or inept when not downright evil. The empowered individual is all. The focus is on the individual, uh, not concerned anymore about community or traditions or religion or anything like that. And isn't that exactly what we find in, in, in the world today? The obsession with self. Community, traditions, religion, that's not important. It's about me. It's about the self, the cult of self But when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't find that. Even though he is a hero, he never broke the law. He perfectly obeyed the law of God. 
The laws that were given to Israel, he obeyed them perfectly. The moral laws, the ceremonial laws, the civil laws, he obeyed them perfectly. He never went above the law. Even though he was the lawgiver, he, he obeyed the law. He was concerned about others, the community, and the traditions of the Jewish people. Uh, Bowden goes on to say, The superhero is an alien or outcast who possesses unique powers acquired either at birth or through some accident or gift. Normal humans are mere bystanders when they are not being crushed or vaporized. Okay. I don't know if you've ever watched Avengers, and I'm always thinking, all those people in those buildings. Like, <laughs> but you see, the individual is nothing. They're just, you're just bystanders. But when you come to the gospel, when you come to Christ, it's not like that. We find Christ concerned with the weakest, with the outcasts, with those that society rejected. People were not just a means to an end. He came, as, as G said earlier. This story today is about love. God so loved the world. He came for those who are broken, those who were in bondage to their sin. He then, the author goes on through various movies, and, but this caught my eye. He talks about Wonder Woman, and he says she defeats Ares, the god of war, not by sacrificing herself, but by hurling large objects and then frying him with thunderbolts. Totally opposite to the gospel. Heroism used to be the idea of laying down your life for others. You know, in war they would give those purple hearts or the Victoria Cross or something like that, these great rewards to people. Why? Because they risked their lives or even lay down their lives to save others. And that's, that's who the Lord Jesus Christ is. He is the one who laid down his life. He is a true hero who sacrificed himself so that we might be saved. He comes in weakness, born in a manger, not born into a wealthy family. We know this when they come and, and uh, have to give sacrifices. Uh, the, the, there were sacrifices for those who were wealthy and for those who were poor. Those who were poor could just bring you know, birds uh, as opposed to larger animals that were more costly. And we know that when Joseph and his family come, when Mary comes, they bring birds. Not born into a wealthy family. Not born into a great city. Not born into a great... Uh, dynasty or empire or anything like that. Not born with a great army. He has to run away with his parents because of Herod. Has to flee to Egypt full of shame. Goes to Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? What's going on here? Weakness all the time. Now, was he able to do great miracles? Yes. Yes. Is he God? Yes. You can read the Gospel of Mark. At the beginning, Mark goes to great lengths to show that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ has power over demons. He's able to cast them out. He has power over death. He's able to raise from the dead. He has power over nature when it is cruel. He calms the storm. He has power over hunger. He creates food. He is he is God. He has this incredible power. But to bring about our salvation, He didn't uh, you know, destroy all our enemies physically. In, in Luke's Gospel, 
they ask that Jesus wants to go to, this, the, to Samaria, and uh, they don't want him there. And so his, uh, James and John say, shall we call down fire from heaven and destroy these people? Uh, we'd have made a great you know, superhero movie, calling down fire from heaven. And the Lord Jesus says, no, that's, you're of the wrong spirit. That's not why he came. He didn't come to bring our salvation through displays of power like that. He came to lay down his life so that we might be saved. He came in weakness. And yet in that weakness, he wins the greatest of victories. So why do we need a hero? If you ask most people, you know, what are the problems that we face? You know, they would say, well, there's, uh, it's, more, it's to do with power. Power imbalances or wealth imbalances. That's why we need someone who can come and make things right. The Bible says, no, there's something deeper. There's something more fundamental that's wrong. And you see this in, in, in Mark's gospel as well. When they bring that paralyzed man to him. His friends of this man and they come to the Lord Jesus. He's in a house. It's packed. They can't get inside. So they go onto the top. And they, they break a hole in the roof and they lower this man down. Totally paralyzed. You'd say, if, if I asked you, what does this man need most? What does this man need to live a fulfilled and satisfying and happy life? Well, he needs to be healed of his, his paralysis. The man hasn't been able to run. He's never, he's never been able to walk and do what he wants to do. He's had to be fed and looked after and bathed and all of these things. What standard of life is that? What quality of life is that? That's what he needs. That's his greatest need. And you know what Jesus says to him? The first thing that Jesus says to him is, your sins are forgiven. What? Your sins are forgiven? Because that's our fundamental need. That's our problem. That's why we need a hero. That's why we need a savior. Because our biggest problem is our sin. Our sin that separates us from God. Our sin that separates us from one another. And from creation and even from ourselves. To illustrate the, the great salvation that this mighty God will bring, Isaiah refers in verse 4 to the slavery in Egypt. He says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And so he references what it was like to be a slave. In Egypt, yoke, a burden, beatings. Israel, were, they were slaves for several hundred years in, in Egypt. In the Old Testament, God's deliverance of Egypt is the paradigmatic example of salvation. It is the great picture for us in the New Testament of what it means to be saved spiritually. You might think, I'm free. It's my body. It's my money. I'm free. I'm free to do what I want to do. The less restrictions, the better. I want to do whatever I want to do. But the Bible says, no, you're, you're enslaved to your sins. You're enslaved to your lusts. Those things that control you. The author, David Foster Wallace, he said the following. Unfortunately, he, he committed suicide. But he said this not long before. He says, everybody worships. If you worship money or things, 
If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. You see, then you're enslaved to money and stuff. Sociologists and anthropologists studying the West and where we find ourselves now, they say there's, there's never been a time where people have been more obsessed with money and stuff and sex and romance and power because they don't have a view that there is something more to this life. Historically, all traditions had a view that there is something afterwards, even if they were wrong, and so they could handle this life better. But now we don't have that. Even as Christians, we, we, we breathe that air in. And so what, what must you do? You must get as much as you can now, live your best life now, experience everything now, have it all now. You're enslaved. You're in bondage to that. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. Isn't that amazing? If you ever read that where they interview these you know, very beautiful people and they'll say, I feel ugly. You think, my goodness, how can you feel ugly? But that's the reality. Uh, there was an interview with... Um, I think it was either Rockefeller or Howard Hughes. He was, at the time, the richest man on the planet. And they said, you know, when are you going to stop? And he said, well, when I've just got another million. You think, surely he's got enough. Surely he'll be okay. No, he's enslaved. You're enslaved to those things. You're in bondage. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need even more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Have you felt that? Feel, I don't get the respect I deserve. You worry that people don't, don't honor you as they should. And so you try to manipulate and, and uh, get more control over other people. It's, you're enslaved to that. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And so we need a hero, we need a champion, we need a valiant warrior, we need a mighty God who can come and save us from our enslavement to sin. And sin is a cruel taskmaster. The wages of sin is death. Paul tells us in Romans. It always promises so much, but the end will be death and destruction. I love that when the Lord Jesus delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt, where they were slaves, where they, they were making mud bricks, where they were being beaten. When he, when he delivers them, before they even get to Mount Sinai, before all of the, the, the law is, is given, in chapter 16, he's, he reinstitutes the day of rest. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Maybe you're there right now. December, 
don't know if you know this, but in many parts of the world has the highest rates of suicide of any month. It's supposed to be this time of rejoicing and everyone's happy and all of those things. But go look in the shops. People rushing around, buying stuff, just obsessed with it. People, there's more divorces that happen over holidays. What's going on? People are see through the facade. It doesn't make me happy, this. They want to get rid of Christ and what's going to happen? It's, it's falling apart. It's bringing that destruction. But Christ says, come to me and I will give you rest. In that same verse, the last line talks about Midian, the deliverance that God gave the Israelites over the Midianites. And that's the story of Gideon. And how God used Gideon to to save the people of Israel. And you can go and read that story. Gideon is, 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 you know, tries to get an army together and then God says, no, send most of them home. Whoever doesn't want to be there, go home. We're told that the Midianites were, were like locusts. You couldn't even number how large their army was. It was like a field of locusts as far as your eye could see. The Lord says, no, there's still many, too many Israelites to fight. Uh, go and drink some water. And the ones who drink like this or like that, they must go home. And he's left with 300 men to fight this massive army. And then they don't even have to go and fight. The Lord says, you know, just get a, uh, get a torch and cover it. And then at the right time, remove that break the covering and shine the torch. That's all they do. These 300 men, they stand around and they just shine torches. You know what happens? The Midianites start killing themselves, killing each other. That's, that's the good news, how God brings victory for you and me. It's not through your, your works. Imagine the Lord just says, you know, you, okay, just shine a torch. That's all you have to do and you'll get the victory. <laughs> I will destroy all your enemies. It's not through your works. Gideon didn't do anything. It's remarkable how Gideon is praised in the New Testament. And yet, what did he do? Nothing. Uh, God brought the victory. God saved the people. I've been reading 2 Chronicles 20. It's been a blessing. It talks about Jehoshaphat. And uh, he's also been attacked by the Edomites and this great horde. He uses the word hordes. These great hordes are about to destroy us. And he says... Uh, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Lord, I don't know what to do, but I'm going to just look to you. And then the prophet speaks. And he says, Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. And it's like the same story with the Midianites. They didn't even have to fight. God caused confusion within the enemy camp and they started killing each other. You and I are, are, are not able to save ourselves. We're not able to destroy our, our enemies. You can say, no, but I've got victory over this addiction. I've got victory over this thing. If you're not in Christ, all you've done is swapped it for another bondage. You've got a different idol now in your life. It's to be seen to be good. It's fear of others, what they will think of you. It's some other thing that has now trapped you. You're enslaved. 
But the gospel says Christ has come to, to set us free. He is mighty. He is the true ultimate hero who isn't just worried about the cult of self and building his own little empire and not concerned about individuals. No, he came to save men and women. But it says he is the mighty God. Why does he have to be God as well? Why is he the God-man? Why is the incarnation so foundational to Christianity? Incarnation, carne, carnivore, meat-eater, flesh. That's what it means. He put on flesh. He put on humanity, frail humanity. He wasn't a superman. Very, very important. He didn't have... Uh, you know, he, he didn't go around flying and uh, all of these things. He was fully human. He got tired. He got hungry. He got depressed. He wept. Fully human. Why did he have to be fully human? Because he's the mediator between God and man. He has to relate to us. He has to represent us. And he has to be able to die in our place. Because of our sin, because we, we want to be slaves to sin, because of our sinful passions and lusts, we deserve the judgment of God. And so Jesus has to come fully human to, to die in our place. But he also has to be fully God so that he is able to bear that eternal punishment in a finite period of time. If you're not a Christian and you die in your sins, your punishment will be eternal because you've sinned against a holy God. And it's not as though people in hell stop sinning against God. It's not as though all the people in hell are suddenly, you know, they love God and are repentant. No. They continue to hate Him. They continue to gnash their teeth. Of course, they want freedom from the pain, but they will never repent. Their hearts are not soft. They don't bend the knee to him. They continue in their rebellion forever. And so the punishment is eternal. And how is Christ able then to pay for our eternal punishment that we deserve in a finite period of time? It's because he is also fully God. And so we are standing on holy ground. How those things work, we don't exactly know. But it is the truth. He's able to represent us to the Father and represent God to us. He is the God-man. He is the only one who is able to save you and me. And so on this Christmas Day, it is right we remember a child, but remember properly what's happening there. That this child is also God when he came. Not he would become God, not like the cults say. In fact, in the Hebrew it says, uh, not he shall be called, but he is the mighty God. He has always been the mighty God. He added to himself a human nature. And so as we remember his coming, Praise God that he was not just a human being, but he was God. Not just a great man, not just a guru, but the God-man, the mighty God who is able to save us. Amen. Let's pray.
Well, Father, we thank you so much for, for your word. We thank you for the truth of who you are, Lord Jesus. Infinitely greater than we can even begin to imagine. But Holy Spirit, we pray that you would reveal something of who Jesus is to us this morning. If there are any here, Lord, who are still enslaved to their sins, still in bondage to their desire for power and fame and status and pleasure and beauty and intellect, oh Lord, please give them true repentance and faith. Set them free. May they see what a mighty hero you are, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this great, the great sacrifice. You were a child who was born to die so that we might live. So please do this. Please work in Jesus' name. Amen.